cactus, you're talking about eating something that really seems like it does not want to be eaten. It's sort of nature's middle finger. So, like lesbian puss. <laughs> there's a lot of processing that goes in. From the smallest room in New York City. <laughs> Wait, I. Comes a show that gives you a reason to live. How frequently are these? Uh, yeah, I know it's not it's not what we do normally. If you have earbuds of your own, that's encouraged. But I, I just threw those in. Uh, their studio uh, never is the answer to <laughs> right. your question. Uh, the mushroom cure. I'm talking to Adam Strauss, uh, directed by uh, Jonathan Libman. It says and he picked a director. And I always, for me, like whenever I was going to do a show, I always like hated the idea of getting a director. Yeah, well, you know, I did the show, and and you were actually one of the first people I spoke with when I was considering doing this show. I don't know if you remember that. This would have been probably 2012. How can I forget a thing like that? (laughs) (laughs) We had a lengthy phone conversation, because you had your show. um, Bitches be stupid, damn. (laughs) I believe it was the title. I thought that was your tagline. No, that was... (laughs) Uh, that was the title, yeah. At least in print, it looks good. All caps and with, you know, exclamation points and stuff. You, you need a comma, obviously, before the, the uh, right, right, right but, preceding the dam. It was parenthetical. Oh, it was parenthetical. Yeah. That seems sort of oxymoronic to have a parenthetical. Isn't a dam supposed to be uh, kind of in your face and... Well, it wasn't hiding behind the parentheses. I think it was uh, it, it was intended to be more like a like a like a shake my head moment. Oh yeah, but it was an internal monologue. But but it was pre S M D H. What does that mean? I think I, online I see it standing for shake my damn head. Oh, did I say the wrong letters? No, I think you, you I think you said the the right letters. Right. S- shake my damn head. So what's the mushroom cure? So um, <laughs> we had a lengthy conversation about it. I should know. No, not not about my show so much because you had uh, your one person show. Which I mean, do you do that anymore? I do it. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I'd like to, but uh, I think I, I know. I've, I've grown. I've grown beyond bitches be stupid. Now I'm like all bitches are fucking stupid. Would be the title if I were to do it today. Yeah, um, but um, but yeah. So I was, I was seeking your advice. Uh, I don't remember specifics. I think I was considering doing the Edinburgh Festival, and you had done it. Um, you had done your show, I think, in theaters or. Yeah, I did it here in New York City. Yeah. I, I only staged a couple of times, and it was really more of a reading with the way I was doing it. And I, I didn't have the... Uh, I wanted to get all the words right, so... Mm, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I did it here at Broadway Comedy Club. Okay, yeah. I certainly... Broadway was a place where I helped... Uh, they, they helped me develop this show, or, you know, they gave me space mm-hmm. to, to do it, but... Uh, but yeah, so I, I mean, basically, you know, my, by the way, this is, we're sitting on a couch, but we're, we're both staring straight ahead. Is this the normal? Well, I'm looking at, I'm looking at your uh, advert here and it says it's riveting, a true life, a tour de force. Yes. Uh, and, That's what uh, my mom said. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's what your mom oh, time said. time out. <laughs> both of our moms agree. <laughs> this show must be seen. Uh, my mom's dead, by the way. Uh, so I know. That's she, what, said that, it, she said that's it beyond the grave. I, yeah, it's I the mushroom it cure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if if you saw my mom, you definitely were high on on some on something. Um, so um, but no, no, yeah, that was that was uh, time out. Um, and uh, that was a later iteration. So, right. So the show. So I had never done any sort of performance other than um, other than pure stand up, and I had these experiences that unfolded over a couple of years. Um. And my feeling, even as I was going through it, was sort of doing the eye contact thing now. 
How, how do you just trying to make you it? comfortable? <laughs> uh, usually, I'm on time. First of all, <laughs> right. uh, secondly, that was 45 uh, minutes late. The way the way I would do this would be uh, I, I would start off by saying, "From the smallest room in New York City comes a show that gives you a reason to live," and then I would go into like a story about crime. Yeah. Uh, now this being uh, the interview portion, uh, that, that it's a little bit different, and you know the the norms are kind of broken here. Yeah. So we have to just kind of like feel. I I, I would have thought that the the improvisational spirit would would be something you could yes and. Yeah, no, I... I, I mean, you got a picture of your dog on your flyer. I do. Yeah. You, you met that dog, didn't yeah. you? Is that yeah. dog still alive? No, he's not. <laughs> like your mom. <laughs> they're they're both in a better place. Right. <laughs> well, my mom is. Your dog's in hell. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> With all the rest of the dogs. Right. Oh, do, do dogs have souls? No. I think they... I, I thought there was some church ruling, some medieval pope or... Well, then, goddamn, we have to listen to that. (laughs) If someone in the 1200s said it, it must be true, right? (laughs) Okay, I'm going to tell people about the mushroom cure if you're not going to. Yeah, you you say the good things, and then I'll tell them. From what what I understand, what you did is is, uh, you're you're a person who has uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder. If if, if people can't tell from listening, that's what's wrong with Adam. Uh, uh, That's all that's wrong with me. Everything else is perfect. (laughs) You've had this uh, your whole life, and uh, you've looked for different ways to uh, kind of of uh, ameliorate the uh, the, yeah, the, the condition, word. you know, to smooth it out, and and, and no luck until uh, you and, and and a friend of yours named Hamilton, I believe. Yeah, uh, you're right. You know Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, sort of uh, looked for a solution outside the the realm of, of what's normally, uh, but now uh, you know by by using mushrooms. Uh, uh, this is uh, psilocybin mushrooms, or is that mm-hmm. how you pronounce that? Yeah. And then you, uh, but now I guess it's becoming more the norm. It's becoming something that people actually do. Uh, I don't know about mushrooms, but but uh, other drugs like uh, ketamine, I think, is used mm-hmm. for depression and stuff like that. So uh, uh, it's it's a different time. Uh, and and you actually traveled uh, sort of the world or something in order to do research for this, right? No. Uh, that's all of that is completely false. Okay, no, no, no you, got, you got you got the gist <laughs> of it. Uh, what I would say is, I actually didn't have. I had OCD tendencies from an early age, but it really sort of flowered uh, after a pretty devastating breakup. And uh, and yeah, I was on medication for for many years. You know, every possible antidepressant, anti anxiety medication. Nothing had helped, which is not uncommon with OCD. OCD tends to be progressive, oh. and there really aren't good uh, pharmaceutical treatments for many people. And then I read a scientific study showing that, as you said, psilocybin mushrooms, hallucinogenic mushrooms, could potentially cure OCD. So as I say on that flyer you're holding, I embarked on a program of vigilante psychopharmacology. I tried to cure myself. Really just, I didn't necessarily think it was going to work, but I was desperate. I mean, my life was pretty out of control in every aspect, professionally and and personally. Now, when was this? um, This was, well, you actually met, so so the main person who I did this with, I'm I'm not going to, is, is, um, I'm not going to say, you met her, uh-huh. uh, Grace. She was that woman from Kansas. Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. She actually had a crush on you. No kidding. You knew that at the time. Well, did I know it at the time? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, did you tell me or did I just sense it? <laughs> no, I told you. you know? oh. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be damned. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I think yeah. I, was, I was with somebody horrible at the time, probably, and, and wasn't able to act. I mean, on I, that. I wasn't offering her up to you. It was, it was more of a. She thought <laughs> I you wouldn't were have cute waited for the offer. <laughs> I would have. I would have buzzed <laughs> right past right. my good friend who's right. in a, a sick condition, <laughs> tapping everything nine times. Yes. Uh, no, no, she was. She. And she, if you could tap it nine times, I probably couldn't yeah. have gotten her. You know? right. 
she uh, she was she was she was a fan of yours. So um, so yeah. So I met her in Times Square. Well, wait. How do you how do you date somebody knowing that they that they sort of like you know some friend of yours? I I, I think I mean, did that may, precipitate may, the breakup? I, is it my yeah, fault? Right, this is, oh man, that's great. May, maybe I oversold the extent to which she it, it was. <laughs> She, she didn't was, find me altogether objectionable. She wasn't writing poetry about you. She wasn't. There's no Pat Dixon tattoo on her hip. You know how most it's, people kind of hate you. She didn't feel that way. Okay. Right. You know she. Um, exactly. <laughs> she. And she lived in Kansas anyway. So who gives a shit? She right? lived in, and then, and then she moved to California for grad school. But so I met her barking for Broadway Comedy Club. Uh, for your listeners who may not be familiar, barking refers to basically handing out flyers, trying to get people to, gullible people to see um, supposedly Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld, but they really get it, get in there, and it's actually Pat Dixon and Adam Strauss. And they were so pleased. <laughs> oh, thank God. Well, most of them, to be fair, didn't speak English, so it wasn't, no. Are you, uh, the only words they understood were Chris Rock. <laughs> right. Blah, 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 Chris Rock. $50. I, did you, uh, you didn't sink to that level, did you, in barking? No, I didn't. I was, uh, uh, I, I did not. I, I I never misrepresented. And to be fair, most barkers don't. That's the reputation. But uh, but it was a hard job. You're out there in Times Square, you know, the sort of central marketplace of the world, trying to shill your product, where everyone else is trying to shill their products. You got the Nigerians with the knockoff Gucci purses. You got all the other comedy clubs, and you've got all the flashing lights. So it was it was a tough gig, and I did it because. I had just started doing comedy, and the two options when you start in New York are open mics or uh, or barking. Yeah. Or bringers, I suppose, but that was a route I didn't want to go. So I was doing that when I met Grace, that woman, um, and she came to the show demonstrating a level of gullibility that <laughs> subsequently... Yeah. With a <laughs> solid foundation f- like that, <laughs> I can't see how it could go wrong. Uh, and so uh, you met her. And, I, and, I met her. She came to the show. She came to the show. Um, and you know, we wound up getting together that night and basically again I, with the gullibility. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, um, I think she knew what she was getting into. She, um, well, anyway, we, we kept in touch and it sort of turned into this long distance thing. And it's at a certain point I asked her if she could get mushrooms because for whatever reason, at this point, there seemed to be a total mushroom drought in New York city. Like I'd asked. Everyone I knew, I'd ask my weed dealer, I'd ask my friend's weed dealers, and it was hard to find mushrooms. So I asked her, and that precipitated, because she lived in a college town, I figured there was a chance, and that precipitated Kansas. this whole... Lots yeah, cows. Lawrence, Kansas. So um, that resulted in me telling her about the OCD, and she revealed that she had sort of inadvertently cured her clinical depression with psychedelic cactus. Okay. Uh, the peyote, is this what it's known well, as, or is this another kind? Another kind. Peyote, all psychedelic cacti, to my knowledge, the main psychoactive compound is mescaline. So peyote has mescaline, but there's also uh, a number of other cacti that contain mescaline. Mm. And some of those are legal to own. Some of them you can buy, or you could at least at the time when I was having these experiences at Home Depot. Uh, ornamental cacti, actually, some of them have mescaline. No kidding. Yeah. I I can hear the footsteps now. People <laughs> shutting their doors, going out, starting their cars, going to Home Depot. It's uh, it's uh, it's it, it's hard though to, as I say in the show, to sort of convert it into some sort of quasi comestible concoction because you're talking about cactus. You're talking about eating something that really seems like it does not want to be eaten. It's sort of nature's middle finger. So uh. <laughs> there's a lot of processing <laughs> that goes into making it. You know, like lesbian puss. <laughs> 
Wait, I, I think it's the other way, isn't it? Well, it doesn't want to be eaten doesn't by me. Like, oh, by you, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yes. Well, some, you, have, you have to add that qualifier. By Pat Dixon. It's not just lesbian puss, it's most puss. Right, well, I, most I, all puss. But, but I would think lesbians, that's a, a more important sexual avenue than for, because they can't have. They don't want dick. Right. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, they, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> doesn't want to be eaten or fucked. <laughs> so you're dealing with a, a, a compound that doesn't want to be eaten or fucked, even though it lives conveniently at Home Depot. So, yeah, so that set off this whole sort of down the rabbit hole where because I'm obsessive, I approach this obsessively and I tried a lot of different drugs, a lot of different psychedelics. And, uh, and it was not, it was a bumpy road and there were some pretty horrific trips. Yes. Life is hard on the uh, young white uh, <laughs> <laughs> professional <laughs> taking a lot of psychedelic drugs yes. in the best city in the world. It, um, well, it, it was, it was obviously the, um, I, I was lucky enough that I had the freedom to pursue this sort of, this sort of quest and that I had enough flexibility with my day job and other things. But, uh, but yeah, ultimately, without... I didn't mean to make you check your privilege. I, uh... <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm, I, mean look, I don't believe look, in that personally. <laughs> like, uh, it does sound no, like... but I do think it's worth, worth noting just in the sense that, uh, well, I guess the reason I bring it up is because I feel really fucking lucky. I, I don't mean just in the broad sense, but specifically in that I had tried everything, nothing had helped. And then it does kind of seem like luck or depending on your cosmological view, divine, you know, intention that I happened to meet someone who, um, who had gone through a similar experience herself and had come out the other side. So, Mm. and she was also a PhD psychologist. So she sort of became in a sense, the unofficial supervisor of this project. And when you ask 200 people if they have mushrooms, (laughs) sometimes you will be lucky enough to meet that one. Yes. And so she's a, she's a, a, got a degree. She's, she knows how to get drugs. She actually, I, 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 she did not supply the drugs. I was, I was in charge of getting the drugs. Okay, so you found uh, mushrooms I, eventually, or cacti. You well, found the I cacti. Found, I found cacti. We did that. Then I found these synthetic uh, psychedelics um, through Hamilton. The good thing about Hamilton is he doesn't mind me using his name because he's pretty out about this stuff. Hamilton Morris. Yeah, he's a he's a drug researcher, yes. and he lives in the jungle. He, no, he lives, well, <laughs> metaphorically, he, li- he lives in Williamsburg. <laughs> no kidding. I thought he was, for some reason, I thought he was in Costa Rica or He something. often is all over the place. He's, okay. Uh, the, the great thing about Hamilton, there's many great things, I, I, but one of my favorite things is I'll text him and, sometimes, and I'll get, I, I've saved some of these texts. Once I got a text, you know, I'll text him, hey, you want to grab coffee? And I'll get something back like... Uh, in Haiti hunting zombies back in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope we got them all. Hey, I, I want to get a quick uh, idea of how many cactuses did you have to buy in order to get a usable amount of drugs when you went to Home Depot and didn't that set off any red flags? We did not get them through Home Depot. I actually got them through eBay. Okay. Yeah. And, and how many? Well, so the dosing is tricky with cacti because you don't really know how potent it is. So I, I think the sort of standard, what, what you'd find if you research this stuff online, is people would say somewhere around, what is it, like two feet of cacti is a dose, though don't quote me on this, it's been years. But yeah. uh, I had a very high psychedelic tolerance because I'd been on these SSRI antidepressant medications, which for many people, and I was among them, actually block the effects of psychedelics. Okay. So I was taking pretty prodigious doses and still having mild trips. Uh-huh. And that was one reason why eventually I gave up the cactus route and moved on to these synthetic drugs, just because 
it's physically difficult to ingest a, a high dose of cactus. Right. Yeah. That's how it's, I was in my twenties with booze. What was you moved to from like? I just beer couldn't. To I just could hearts. not. I could not get enough. Yeah. Uh, in, in my system, that actually I wish that was true. I had three beers and I was pretty much uh, on my way to having a good time always. So you uh, now you're how old were you at this point? You're in your mid thirties. I was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Was, and and so you've decided to move on to the synthetics like LSD. More of this stuff called research chemicals, uh, which is a whole story. But basically, this chemist named Alexander Shulkin took some of the um, natural psychedelics mm. like mescaline, like psilocybin, and started tweaking them and came up with these new molecules. It's a whole, it's pretty remarkable. He came up with, I think, about 200 novel psychedelics. And they weren't illegal because they hadn't been invented yet. Nice. He was actually, a de- he was... He was affiliated with the DEA. He would, I believe he was an expert witness at trials. So they sort of knew he was doing this. But then at a certain point, someone at the DEA freaked out. They raided his lab. Uh, no charges were filed. But what he did, because he, he saw this, and I think correctly, as a great contribution to humanity, potentially, and his life's work. And he was worried it was going to be suppressed or destroyed. So what he did... Just because he's working for the DEA? <laughs> well, yeah, and because these were... Uh, again, you know, pretty potent psychedelics. Yeah. What he did is he published essentially recipes on how to make all of these uh, very cheaply. He put it all out there. Wow. And so it's, it's, you can actually cheaply create your own super potent psychedelic I drugs. Can't and you can. You need a chemistry background. This isn't, it's not easy. But once these recipes were out there, one of the bizarre effects okay. of, the, of the drug war is as there was a crackdown, this, this gets pretty far afield, but... Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that set this off is the main production facility for LSD in the U.S. and possibly worldwide, I'm not sure, for many years was a uh, was in Kansas, was an abandoned missile, missile silo in Kansas. Uh, I can't remember the name of the guy who was running it. Uh, Harvard-educated chemist, I believe. It's all those type professors and, and like, you know, low-life, uh, you know, scumbag uh, you know, Ivy League fuckheads who do this kind of shit, it seems. It definitely, well, the real drug nerds, I think, tend to, uh, <laughs> but so this guy, the DA busted him or whatever, law enforcement agency. So there was now suddenly a huge dearth of LSD in the U.S. And so people stepped in capitalism to the marketplace mm-hmm. by creating these, whipping up batches of these synthetic psychedelics invented by Alexander Shulgin. And, and, and so far legal. Yeah, quasi-legal. There's a bizarre, not but just a ridiculously unjust law called the analog law which basically states that any drug that mimics the effects of an illegal drug is de facto illegal. I had no idea. Yeah. So you could, I could make something that makes you feel as good as heroin and also uh, cures cancer, and it would be illegal under the analog law. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, you know, imagine how much that drug would cost. <laughs> and and uh, you know what they did with, uh, and, and it's far afield, you know, but like Spice and, and K2 here, you know, they keep changing it just little by little. And it manages to be legal, uh, I, technically, I thought, but um, I, I wasn't aware of this analog law. It's a gray area. There was, to my knowledge, and, and I was very, you know, up on this stuff four or five years ago. I'm not so much now, but to my knowledge, I don't think there's been a successful prosecution under that law. Mm. Um, Did you ever try spies? I tried, um, I tried JWH-73, which I believe is one of the main constituents of spice, the okay. synthetic cannabinoid. Okay. Um, I liked it. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't chop your own penis I didn't, off. I or didn't anything. chop my own penis off. Um, <laughs> you got to consider that a success. <laughs> right. Well, okay. So this brings us to you've tried these synthetics, and what was the fallback? I mean, what, what was uh, the downside of that? Well, uh, the f- you know to to make a, already a long story, not that short, but but shorter. But basically, you know, the show itself is about an hour and a half long, so it's a long story, but. Ultimately, I, I tried these synthetics. I tried LSD. I did try mushrooms. The net effect of all of it is the OCD is a lot better. And I would say the psychedelics were necessary for that, but not in and of themselves sufficient. They helped me, but not in the way I expected them to. It wasn't a silver bullet. It didn't take away the OCD. Mm-hmm. What it did do is it helped me accept the anxiety and the obsessive thoughts. Because the thing about OCD is you have... You have, um, <laughs> Pat is t- untying and tying his shoe. I feel like this is a subtle mockery of me, of OCD. <laughs> you know, start no, adjusting. No, this wasn't it. tight enough, you know. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I don't like my so, Maybe I have it. It's a little. Do you well, have any mushrooms? <laughs> I, I think, I, I think most people have the tendencies towards control and perfectionism, especially in this city. Um, and so the way this stuff helped me is, you know, with OCD, you have an obsessive thought. That thought provokes anxiety, and then you engage in some sort of repetitive behavior as a way of trying to neutralize that thought and anxiety. But if you can actually accept the thought and the anxiety, um, it may not go away, but then you're freed from having to engage in the behavior because you've already accepted it. It's like if you're afraid someone's going to punch you in in the face and you're sort of bobbing and weaving, well, once you accept it, once they punch, have actually punched you, it hurts, but you don't have to bob and weave anymore. You or have rather, freedom. you even accept the anxiety that it's a possibility. Yeah. Then, then you, uh, then you can walk straight into it, or and it can happen or not, right? It's it's really about freedom rather than rather than getting rid of uh, of the condition. So that that's how freedom, really from the behavior. Yes, because yeah, the okay. behavior is really what becomes the most destructive part. Because if your my OCD was about decision making, so I'd make a decision. Um, then I'd have an overwhelming compulsion to reverse it. I'd, f- I'd realize that I'd missed some critically important variable and then reverse this, uh, the decision. And then I'd realize, no, I'd gotten it right the first time. And then I'd reverse the reversal. And so I could spend hours or days locked in my apartment. And how small down did the decision go? Pretty fucking small. Um, it could, um, you know, I could spend days debating whether to, I remember I was doing uh, a show in Montauk once and for three days, it just took over whether I should take the train or borrow my brother's car and drive there. Because mm. once it starts to take over, it becomes self-perpetuating because you start, you, you get into this cycle and it actually makes you more anxious. And now that you have more anxiety, well, what are you gonna do? You're gonna engage in the, the behavior more to try to get rid of that anxiety, but the behavior just creates more anxiety. So you engage in more of the behavior. Really mushrooms then. So, sorry? It really mushrooms It really then. mushrooms. So, <laughs> <laughs> It, well, it's an addiction, essentially. And, and one of the other things that was helpful um, for me, um, I know something you've had some experience with, is the 12-step thing. Oh, you, can, yeah. you can treat it like that, where... Thanks for outing me, by the way. <laughs> Were you not out about that? <laughs> so I can cut it out. <laughs> um, sorry. I don't... No, no, that's fine. Um, but yeah, so it, it's, it's an addictive cycle, where basically you're engaging in a behavior to reduce pain, and that behavior does reduce pain in the very short term. Someone with hand washing, you know, uh, contamination fear, when they wash their hands, the anxiety does go down for a tiny bit, but then it creeps back up. So then they'll do it again. And it goes down a little bit, but it creeps back up. And meanwhile, 
they're, you know, they get fired from their job because they can't leave their apartment because they're washing their hands. And that, of course, causes much more anxiety. So, right. Huh. So, yeah, uh, that's, uh, it sounds debilitating. It sounds, and, and you had a, it sounds like a, a fairly, uh, I guess, extreme case of, I mean, I guess it gets, I guess it's, it's all relative, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. a lot of people, well, this, that study of psilocybin that I had read that inspired my quest, the subjects in that, there were people like, you know, they would spend uh, nine hours putting on and taking off pants, trying to get them to feel right, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. So it, it is all relative. But, you know, I think of the popular conception, a lot of people yeah, see Three, us. four hours of that, man, that's all you can do. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's enough. <laughs> After that, it's <laughs> you're going overboard. You have a problem. <laughs> I, don't think your shoe, I don't think your shoelaces are tight enough, Pat. I feel pretty good. Um. But yeah, so it, it is all relative, but I will say a lot of people, you know, people joke, or not joke, but they just say it very uh, sort of tritely, oh, you know, I'm so OCD, I have to clean my apartment. Oh, that's annoying, yeah. But in my experience, most people who have it, it tends to get worse over time, um, and, and it and it really does tend to take over. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that, does that offend you when people make an expression like that? No, it doesn't because, you know, they're, they're unaware. They're yeah. unaware of how, how so it's and, really silly. I just I, I find it a very silly. Well, also I think you do have to realize how absurd OCD is. I mean, it's engaging in these ridiculous behaviors to try to affect a change that that you can't. I mean, ultimately, what you're trying to do is you're trying to achieve absolute certainty and absolute safety, which doesn't exist in of this course. world. Of course. Oh, okay. Right. And and therefore, there's the anxiety. It makes yeah. sense, actually. Anxiety is a normal is a normal place to be. It's a strategy to avoid anxiety that creates more anxiety, which, again, I think describes most substance abuse and most behavioral addictions, probably all of them. Probably so. And then, especially once you get to, like, uh, let me help you out. When you get to a point of, like, uh, uh, where where you spent so much of your time, uh, you know, like in in the decision making, and now you're behind for some reason. You're late. You're yeah. you're you, and, and then it really ratchets up. So, so you've tried everything now, uh, up up to uh, mushrooms. And what was your first? Uh, now you've done mushrooms before. Did you find? Uh, when you weren't trying to use it medically, did, did it seem to relax your, your symptoms? I'd only done mushrooms once before this time. I did it once in college, and I had a pretty... It was a pretty powerful experience, but I didn't feel compelled to repeat that experience. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, and at that point, I didn't really have OCD. I would say I had probably elevated anxiety but it, it hadn't assumed the ocd form oh okay i see what you mean so uh, nothing to cure yet like because it's progressive 15 years down the road you're uh yeah like fuck i gotta do something about this okay so so uh, well where does that take us in your story then well i kind of just jumped to the to, to the uh the outcome of it a, a lot happens there were there were brushes with the law there's uh, this whole relationship with that woman who uh, thought you were mildly attractive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm downgrading she it now. She so <laughs> wanted to fuck me. Yeah. So bad. Yeah. I, think, I think she did a little bit. She was, uh, yeah. But, you know what? Everybody wants to fuck everybody a little bit. Absolutely. You know? that, I could not agree with that more. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a tough thing to, to, that to sounds accept. Like a, that sounds like a children's book. <laughs> <laughs> In a marriage, you know, you kind of go like, oh, yeah, that's it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, she never has it. But my wife in particular, she's probably thinking that all the time. Yeah. She's such a fucking horn dog. 
that uh, she's. It's amazing to me the amount of dick she must have to resist in order to to stay in this very young marriage that we're all still, uh, you know, sort of on the fence about <laughs> waiting to see if it's going to work out. I've never been more certain of anything, uh, but uh, you know, and just saying that for my own fucking, you know, sure. uh, sanity. But well, I guess that's it, folks. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Nobody's we, listening. <laughs> should we talk about crime? Oh no, no, no! I want to. I want to kind of round this uh, okay, conversation yeah. out because we, yeah, before we got to that, uh, we were talking about. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you you mentioned Kate. Right? Was it a name, Kate? No, uh, Grace. Grace, Grace. Yes. Okay, Grace. Um, I'm just trying to know what name to spank bang. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, but yeah. So there was. So that that's sort of in the oh, show. Oh yeah, yeah. The so story. that's in the show. And that's then, a big element. Is yeah. It, it is brushes a, with law. A car chase. <laughs> There's no car chase. There, there was. Uh, there, there was a brush with the law. Um, there was. Um, yeah, some pretty, some pretty horrific. Uh, psychedelic experiences and uh, yeah, so the show I'll I'll, I'll finish uh, the the logistical promotion part of it. It's the Mushroom Cure. Yeah, mushroomcure.com. The mushroomcure.com. We finished a, a month long run off Broadway here in New York at Cherry Lane Theater. Thanks for coming to that, Pat. I really appreciate it. No problem. <laughs> um, yeah, man. Hey, anything you're doing, I'm there. <laughs> uh, and we're going to. I, I don't know when it will happen, uh, where and when it'll happen next, but it will be relatively soon there's a there's we're, we're working on that now so um right here in new york city we're going to be doing it in new york and also elsewhere um so if you live in elsewhere <laughs> uh watch your calendar watch your watch your uh little uh weekend uh you know uh what, what do you call those things uh the, the the little things that are free that nobody likes you know what I'm talking about? The, the, uh, uh, little, the circulars, your little... Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, the, like the Sunday... Uh, yeah. What, what do you call those Cir- things? Uh, circulars? Uh, that, that, that sounds like more like a, a advertising bullshit. Oh, I uh, thought that's what you were yeah, referring yeah, to. Yeah, I was, but but, um, but but the other things, uh, they're like creative loafing and shit like that. You know, the, you ever heard of creative loafing? No. Uh, so they, they have like almost like a chain of them, I think. You know what I mean? Like they, creative loafing is, is like one of those... Uh, oh, you know, the, the weekend asshole or whatever. You know what I mean? It's free and they hand them out. Oh, uh, but yeah, yeah, like sort of like the, I guess the Village Voice is like that a, now. right, like a free sort of yeah, yeah, periodical. So watch that, right? <laughs> if you live in elsewhere, that was a long way to go to get. <laughs> yeah, to it get really, to... it truly was. But I mean, you gotta you gotta be willing to make that trip, as you have here. Yes. Now, Jonathan Libman, why him? He's so I'd never worked. So I I did the show after after the lengthy conversation that you recall. Mm-hmm. I uh, I wrote it. I assumed it would be stand up because that's you know that's what I was doing at that point. And so I applied to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Um, you apply for different categories. There's theater, dance, stand-up, and probably a bunch of other stuff. And I applied for stand-up. Then when I actually started doing the show, I realized it's not. I did a few warm-up performances here in New York, and it, it's not stand-up. It's it's certainly funny, um, but there's a lot of narrative. So it's, yeah. it doesn't have that density of punchlines. I really didn't have the, the time to put in superfluous jokes everything has to serve the story this isn't your uh, your typical uh, laugh every every 10 seconds adam strauss comedy set <laughs> more like 15 but yeah <laughs> <laughs> right it's it's not it's not punchline dense there there are laughs because of the story and there are you know if i can work in a, a joke that doesn't take away from the story then uh, i do that too so i i have no background in theater uh, but I did the show in Edinburgh 2012. I came back, did it again 2013. It, it had a good response. 
Uh, but I was getting bored with it because in Edinburgh, everything has to be an hour long. And it's a long story. A lot of stuff happened. So I got back from Edinburgh 2013 and I was like, you know what? I just, I'm not enjoying it anymore. But I realized the reason I wasn't enjoying it is I'd had to cut out so much that the story, there was nothing false in what I was saying, but I'd lost the truth of it. Mm. So then I figured, well, rather than stopping to tell this story, which I, I care about the story deeply, it's a powerful story for me, just sort of the sense of wonder I have that this actually happened. It's a lot of pretty remarkable coincidences. Yeah, it's your life. Yeah, it's my life, and it does seem pretty improbable, and there's that element of, wow, I was kind of, uh, I was lucky, you know, I was taken care of, whether it's random chance or not. So I value telling the story, and I realized, well, why don't I just tell the story however long it takes? And so that's when I started going into Broadway Comedy Club. Al Martin, the owner there, very generous. He gave me, um, I think initially it was Saturday afternoons. I'd come in every Saturday, 3 or 4 p.m., and just start talking. No script. And I did that for about six months, at which point I had maybe seven or eight hours of material, and I was so confused. I was like, what's good? What's not good? What should be in the story? Oh, God. That's, a, that's an hour of material for every customer you had in six months. <laughs> Roughly. There were, some, there were some lighthouses. There were definitely some single-digit houses. Uh, hey, let's hear this babbling <laughs> lunatic talk about drugs. There were, uh, yeah. So, um, and at that point, I was going to do the New York, New York Fringe Festival, and I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't, I just, I have so much material. And so I, that was the first time where I felt, all right, I, I see the value of having a director, of having someone else, an outside view. And yeah, um, making some of the decisions and, and yeah, sort of well, like, like a red pen to help edit here and there. That and also, yes, I think that's what I was looking for initially. What turned out to be really fruitful. So I, I met Jonathan, a producer who had someone who knows when the dry ice comes in and everything. <laughs> and <laughs> the go-go dancers uh, drop on the, the, the suspended platform. Like, here's what you gold. need. <laughs> I think that's always what every show needs. Yeah. Um, I mean, I could, I could, yeah, I, could, I don't, you know what? I had a friend who said any movie that would not be improved by bikers coming in and killing everybody is a good movie. That was his standard. That's a, that's a reasonable standard. I thought so too, yeah. So would your, so for the first six months, your show probably would have benefited from bikers coming in and murdering you and the, <laughs> the entire audience. No, no doubt. Yeah. But yeah, when I brought him on, and I, a, a producer who had seen the show and had, had actually wanted to option it, which in hindsight I should have taken them up on, but I, I didn't know what I was doing, and I, I think I had... Um, I felt like it wasn't ready. Anyway, they were still advising me. They gave me the names of a few directors, and Jonathan was the first one I met with. And, you know, I do agonize over decisions, and part of that is comparison shopping. I'll always evaluate all, all my options. But I was so impressed by him in our first meeting that I didn't even bother calling any of the other directors. He was just so um, generous is the word for it. He wasn't trying to prove himself or show what he could add to the show. He was just watching me work through it, laughing, and then giving, you know, li little thoughts. Mm. And so we've worked together closely now for two years. And I mean, I don't use this word lightly. I, I, he's, he's a genius. He's really just so fucking good at what he does. I, I never understood what a director did or how someone is good or not good at it. And, and I still don't, maybe I can't articulate it, but he just, he sees possibilities that, that I don't. And he also has the theatrical background. So he can look at things that I do that I may think are are novel or clever, and he can say, well, that's kind of a cliche in theater. Or, All right. Yeah, or he can also point to other things and say, you know, you intend us to feel it this way, but we've just seen you do this, you know, two scenes earlier, so we're going to receive it that way. Oh. So he's paying attention, listening. Yeah, and yeah. not being me, um, yeah. having that outside <laughs> view. 
<laughs> so yeah, yeah, and that's that, yeah, definitely yeah, exactly. You have to have an outside view if you want somebody who's not you. Uh, well, it, it sounds fucking fascinating. I'd love to see it. Uh, and it's something you recommend people do while they're on drugs. No, because we've joked about that, uh, John and I. But I, I think you have to sit quietly in a theater for 90, 95 minutes. So yeah, the, I think there's, not like, there's of... not like a balloon break or something. <laughs> right. Well, with 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 tripping, I mean, maybe with all drugs, but especially with tripping, I think you want to uh, you want to have the freedom to move around, to go outside. Um, so probably not not the ideal form to... Yeah, you know, we used to do mushrooms sometimes. We And this was like, I had a brief drug period, uh, I don't know, a few years ago, and uh, I would jump out of the uh, house on mushrooms and go grab the end train and just ride it right into the city and, you know, just be on the train saying, like, we're on drugs, you know? And, of course, nobody cares. And it was absolutely the opposite experience of what so many people say they have with, with it. They, they want to be experiencing nature and they want to be, mm-hmm. but, you know, I think it's just your surroundings. It doesn't really matter if it's nature or whatever. It's just uh, any place where there's a lot of uh, either a lot of stimulus uh, or stimuli or, or like uh, very, I don't know, like powerful stimuli. But I bet even in a place with no stimuli, you're still going to be stimulated. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there is no place with no stimuli, not, not to get too philosophical, but there's always something going on. You could be alone on the beach. Apparently you've never been to LOL. (laughs) (laughs) I love that club. That that was great. That was great. (laughs) Well, Hey, so uh, we could do a crime or two. What the fuck? A family uh, here in Brooklyn. uh, No, they got into a Donald Trump argument and uh, this guy, his name is Maurice Braswell, 49 years old. And he, he and his family, as all families have, I'm sure, over the last year or so, got into this uh, shouting match. Uh, he was with his brother there, uh, Dwight. It was a boozy get-together at their mom's Flatbush home. Now, a lot of bad things can come out of a boozy get-together at a Flatbush home. And this is one of them. He uh, bellowed at one point, corporate America won the election. Now, I assume he's on the uh, anti-Trump side. Uh, if he's upset about the result, he grabbed a kitchen knife. He started slashing everyone around him. Do you argue with your uh, friends and family about politics? No, I can't say I've gotten into a heated argument about politics. I mean, it's probably if it was going to happen, it would have been this year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, did, did you, uh, first of all, uh, now, like you, you don't seem like a violent sort of person uh, under any circumstances, you know I mean? But, uh, uh, when you read something like this, you go, man, sometimes people really give a shit in a different way. I feel like I care just as much, but I gotta, I vote, I'm done. You know I mean? Like I, I talk about it or whatever, but I mean, it's really not that there's a cutting somebody isn't really. But, but I wouldn't, I, I, I assume that they're under, it's not just about his passion for or against Trump. There's clearly some family dynamics at play. It's, it's true. Yeah. It, I guess that's why, why it made the news though. The actual topic of the argument seldom, seldom it doesn't right, make it in enough. Point. Good I wish point, it, right. When you hear about a domestic dispute, they never tell you what it's about. Yeah. It it's could true. be like, because they don't want, you know why? I think they don't want people reading it going, he had he a point. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this guy. I mean, like, he's tired of sleeping on the couch or whatever the hell. Uh, it sounds like a crowded home here. She says they don't fight a lot, the mother, Yvonne Braswell. She said, everyone here voted for Clinton, but my sons, both of them are high strung. When they do fight, it can get bad. <laughs> Evidently. 
Yeah, uh, he, Maurice. Slashing. He has, well, he has 17 prior arrests, uh, and so, yeah, I, I guess that, that would underline uh, the fact that maybe it doesn't have so much to do with, uh, you know. Or he's just passionate about politics at all levels. <laughs> he's, he's beating the all shit out of, of people out of all, over alderman elections. <laughs> oh, comptroller. <laughs> he knifed two dudes over the comptroller. <laughs> like, God damn it. Melissa Mark Viverito <laughs> is going to be an incredible speaker. Uh, he had uh, 17 prior arrests, became enraged when he felt uh, that his relatives weren't respecting his opinion. Well, hey, man, if you're going to respect the opinion of anybody, that guy with 17 prior arrests, I would give him my utmost attention uh, because I'm afraid. And uh, I wonder if the rest of the family has any arrests. But it, it was a fight between brothers. She said both of them are good men. Oh. I think I think one of your Braswells would beg to differ with you there. <laughs> so what? Is, so who who did he? he, he well, attacked he, his it, brother? Said he just sliced everybody at first, but he he, he severed his 25 year old sister Shapavaya's thumb. <laughs> uh, Shapavaya. I'm laughing about the the name, not the, and also <laughs> you, you put you put some good spin on that name. Well, yeah, <laughs> your facial expression, which <laughs> your listeners can't see, really is what put it over the top. It was like I was picking a like 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 picking a turd off the floor. <laughs> was, when there, I was a, there was an element of disdain, <laughs> but also joy in that disdain. I think. Well, yeah, I, a lot of joy, a lot of joy uh, so he, in, in he, saying he, a name he, like Shapavaya. <laughs> it's a biblical name, I believe. Yeah, the book I, of Shapavaya. I, I hope so. I hope she didn't just the mom didn't. Just make that up. Oh no, they they don't. Nobody makes up names, you know. Why yeah, not? Uh, Are I, you going to reproduce? Do. They do. They do make. They make. They when I say they, I mean people. Mothers do, and uh, specifically in the African American community, I think sometimes they will make up names, mm-hmm. uh, uh, or, or they'll use things. Well, uh, for instance, a nephew Bwigat. Suffered cuts. What was that? What was that name? Bwigat. How do you spell that? B W I G A T. Bwigat. Your pronunciation is impeccable. <laughs> I was like, I bet it's like we got. We got. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I doubt why, that. Why would you? Why would you do that to a kid? I mean, because it's. I mean, it's it's the the uniqueness is already going to bring down ridicule, but also it's just it's it's confusing. It's. I, don't, I, I guess. Oh, I that's wonder a picture if that, of the the thumb. So, yeah. so severed his sister's thumb. Well, you know, the word severed is is kind of like uh, I, I, it was near severed, I guess, because I don't think that that was all the way off and then and then back on to that degree, uh, just with a big bandage on it. You know, of course, I don't know. Maybe you get it. if you cut off somebody's fucking. I guess it's a defensive wound. She was trying to break up the fight, so she just threw her arm up. I don't think he, I don't think he intended to uh, cut Shapavaya's thumb off. He was just going for his brother Dwight, maybe Dwight, <laughs> Dwight and Shapavaya. <laughs> <laughs> you had a joke like that with you. Oh yeah, with yeah, your yeah. Sis, Miracle and Doug. Miracle and Doug were the names <laughs> I used. Yeah. <laughs> you name your kid Miracle. You need to come up with something suitably, you know, uh, exciting and and uh, inspiring for your for your other kid. It can't be Miracle and Doug. You can't have Shapavaya. And and Dwight. Dwight. <laughs> well, they reattached the thumb. I guess all's well that ends well. She's still human, you know, at this point. Uh, a guy got cut on the train as well, and this one was considerably less personal. Uh, although the guy, they, they did kind of make it. That's one thing about about like some of these crimes. They're they're termed as you know possible hate crimes or, or whatever. I, I don't know if that's what this is. Uh, Thug was taken into custody after he. he uh, he didn't just say a homophobic slur; he hurled it. 
uh, as they often do in the New York yes. Post. A lot of a lot of uh, slur hurling uh, before slashing him on a Manhattan train early Sunday. This was on a Bronx bound D, uh, you know, on, on his way to the Boogie D, when uh, the attacker called him an ugly faggot before slashing him in the left thigh. Um, which I thought the headline was a little out of line. You know what, what I mean? What's the headline? The headline is uh, a man hurls a man calls a man calls a guy ugly faggot. Man, I think it was. <laughs> oh wait, let me find it. I'm pretty sure that's not. The man headline. calls ugly faggot ugly faggot. <laughs> man calls homo ugly faggot before. It's no, it's man screamed homophobic slur before slashing man on train. Um, but and and has faggot all? I'm sure it's always been one of these dot 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 words as it is now. Um, but I wonder what in the 70s it was a much more common term. 80s it seems like people just said faggot. It wasn't a big deal. Well, Doug Stanhope has a has a great bit about that where he he's I, I think a, the the punchline or the culmination is you know it, it, he talks about how he loves the word itself. It's just such a hard. It has such a great sound to it. Yeah, and he doesn't want to lose that word. And if you're offended by that, he'll suck your dick. Oh, well, <laughs> that's a guy who's willing to go further than most to preserve a word. That's a man who loves yeah. language, isn't it? Yes, but, <laughs> but, uh, well, the 39 year old suspect fled. Police caught him on 127th Street and St. Nicholas Avenue. He didn't make it far if he did this at the 125th Street station. He called him an ugly faggot before slashing him in the left thigh, which is, you know, a pretty intimate place to slash somebody. Well, inner thigh versus outer thigh. I think that's the question. Yeah. And how high up and because well, it could be intimate or it could be relatively Oh, I, oh yeah, yeah. I guess you're I guess that's right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, I, yeah, of course. Uh I for some reason I was seeing it as, you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> like a very <laughs> But if it's left thigh and the guy's right-handed, then it was, probably was the outer thigh and he just like took a swing. But uh why would you swing for the thigh? Why would you th- Yeah. Well, maybe if the guy was seated and to, to, you know there's a lot. There's a lot of there's factors. There's a lot of questions. There. But uh, more importantly, how ugly was this faggot? You know, I mean, like, uh, I, I wonder what is the post, uh, the post did not fact check this aspect of the story. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that that's irritating. Yeah, all the all the the wrong stuff is is uh, is fact checked. That's well, at least we know what the argument about Shabadai and Dwight was. Yeah, we was do. About. Which is again, you know, like thank God, for, thank God for the New York Post. I'm sure that the uh, Daily News covered that story differently. You know, I'm sure they can. If I could, they probably covered it as like, oh, well, now that Trump's elected, <laughs> people get their thumbs cut off. You believe that shit? Trump, Trump supporters, supporters suffering so. thumbs of <laughs> of Clinton voters. <laughs> they are trying to dehumanize and uh, cut off the thumbs. A man was uh, crushed. Uh, uh, by a train, not crushed. He was pushed onto the track, though a Chelsea subway track. This is a, you know, I happened to be walking by this station uh, that morning when this was going on, and I was like, "What's going on?" They said somebody got on the tracks. So I was like, "Okay." Uh, he was he only got his uh, foot cut, his hand was cut, and his foot was injured. He was taken to Bellevue Hospital. Uh, Mike Allison, fifty four, struck by a northbound one train at the 18th Street station around oh, 7.20 that, in the morning. That explains, because I was wondering, how is this guy getting out with just a cut hand and an injured foot? But the subway, I, I'm furious that there's even an 18th Street one station. Uh-huh. It's four blocks from the 14th Street station. Is it? I, it's odd, isn't it? Right. You don't, I, my theory, there was some councilman or someone who, it was some sort of pork project to. Yeah. But yeah, there shouldn't be a station there. But in this case, this guy benefited because the train had all of, you know, four blocks to accelerate. 
<laughs> right? Otherwise, how do you sur- how, do you, how do you walk away from? No, I don't know. Yeah, you, with minor injuries, getting hit by a train, it was that? going three miles. An I don't hour. know. I know I'm exactly how much he benefited. He would if he wouldn't have been. You know, there would have been <laughs> right. no station there, and no, <laughs> right. no hole in the ground. Well, or maybe he would have been pushed at the 23rd Street station, where there would be more. That's true. Yeah, where, where, where he would have, where he would certainly be dead, as he should be, highly intoxicated at 7:20 in the morning, as all three men were. It's noted a topic of the argument. Not immediately clear. <laughs> Not <laughs> fuck. Maybe this fucker needed to die. Fifty-four-year-old Mike Allison. We don't. Yeah, we don't know. We have no way of knowing. Uh, he may have gotten off way too light with his cut foot and his hurt hand, but he is. Uh, he's 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 in stable condition. Uh, I'm sure he's. So released. he got probably, off better probably, than probably, Shebediah. Whose thumb was severed? <laughs> it's Shebediah. Now it's Shebediah. It's, uh, his Am Ezekiel. I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, well, uh, here's the thing about this guy. Now he, he, he 18, so Trump 18, supporters are actually more dangerous than Subway. Not only are they more dangerous. Subway. You need to get used to this fact. We were. I'm a Trump supporter. We will dominate every aspect of your life. If you have any, what they need to do is just take a fucking uh, like a, a stick. You know what I mean? Like like that they use for for like a like a swath. Of, what do you call those things? Like a switch. I, like like. No, like, <laughs> <laughs> no, like a, a swab. A color swab. Is that what they call it? Oh, a swatch. A swatch. A swatch yes. Yeah. And then it's like say okay and hold it up to a person's skin and go nope darker than that. Get on the <laughs> fucking boat. And that's the end of you. That's, that's the test. Whatever you claim to be, you know, imagine to it. It's just a work in progress. I really don't know exactly. We're going to get rid of a, a couple of million people, but we'll get there. This is a uh, what they call a uh, 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 the city itself is. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of the word a, uh, a a sanctuary city, but meaning that like you don't have to be anything here, and and supposedly nobody's going to do anything about it. You don't have to. Be a citizen. I hate it when fucking websites do that. Uh, okay, so let's talk about Mike Allison one more time. 18th Street. Here's how I think 18th Street must have come to be. I think 18th Street is the one train. I think the 18th Street stop was probably, you're probably right. It could be some kind of pork project or, you know, like they're trying to turn 18th Street into a thing. Right. And it's the only one that has one that I know of. Well, this 28th also, right? Yeah, and it also has 28. But it's that like, at least there's a five-block separation in one direction. And four blocks up. is ridiculous. Four blocks is ridiculous. If you're not walking four blocks, <laughs> you have a fucking problem, especially because when you walk down 18th Street, you only have to go down to 16th before you've got an actual entrance to the 14th Street station, or maybe 15th I think Street. it's 15th. It's 15th. But it's three blocks. It's actually between 15th and 14th to be three and a half. Fucking ridiculous. Or, for that matter, but I know on 18th Street, it's it's you just got to go down to 16th. Oh really? So yeah, I believe so. I so believe yeah, sixteenth yeah, on 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 eighth eighth Avenue rather. From, for, yeah. Well, that's for the four, right? For the AC. Yeah, for the AC. The AC. Yeah. So it's just one avenue over. Still okay. I get it. You have to walk. <laughs> but Jesus Christ, I think that that stop maybe was before Twenty Third Street became what it is now. The one where they all stop because I think the one train was one of the very first subways. Well, they all—they don't all stop at Twenty Third. They all stop at Thirty Fourth. Well, almost everything. Oh, well, the the expresses don't stop at Twenty Third, right. but everything stops at Twenty Third. Don't, don't they? Don't well, the Sixth Avenue, Seventh oh, Avenue, different lines. Let's, yeah, different lines. Yeah, like uh, right, they right, all stop right. At 23rd. There are on, on different avenues. There are right the yeah. yeah the, so before Twenty Third yeah, Street 23rd became the a, one that they're all yeah. going to stop at, they're like Eighteenth. <laughs> 
Like, it doesn't make any sense, though. It's, just, but it's not the, even spaced properly. No, no, and the subway is, they just celebrated the 100th anniversary. So even if it was one of the first lines, like, also the amount of labor, given the relatively primitive state of, you know, engineering then, uh, to, it just seems poor planning. Like, they know how big Manhattan is. You got to make it up all the way up there. And do you know, though, that, like, they still dig those fucking holes the same way? They still dig those tunnels in a very similar way they used to. Dynamite and fucking guys who don't give a fuck. Well, there's some massive machine that they have for the 2nd Avenue subway line. Yeah? Yeah. And it's something better? I believe so. Hmm. It may be a combination, though. There may be places where they have to use... You ever want to kill your dad? No, I've never been. I've never been legitimately homicidal towards my parents. Me neither. Uh, I don't understand Test. anybody who would be. Oh, this is a setup, sir. Yeah, <laughs> I was answering the question genuinely. <laughs> like I'm turning <laughs> dials here, like going, hmm, that's uh, that's a lie. <laughs> I felt like it was kind of a, an interrogation there for a moment. I'm trying to bring up this other story about this guy. Uh, now his name's Thomas. I think Gibson. He was a. Uh, we we talked about this guy for fucking a couple of episodes a while back, and he's he's still around for Christ's uh, sake. Yeah. You know, I mean, I cannot believe that this fucking guy is has not gone to trial yet. Let's see, his name is a rich kid. He's uh, from Princeton. Uh, the man's name is Thomas Gilbert Jr. Thirty two. He wrote this weird letter on a typewriter to uh, to um, the court. And he says and he's trying to keep certain people out of the courtroom. <laughs> he keeps it's so vague that I think maybe he's trying to maybe lay ground for a mistrial yeah. or something like that. These overeducated fuckers, you never know what they're up to. Uh, he said, "Okay, the, the unhinged prince and grand." This is a reading from the New York Post. Accused of killing his millionaire hedge funder. Accused of it, his mom watched him blow the guy's brains out. Uh, in fucking cold blood, he asks, uh, and, and really, that's the worst way to get shot. He asks um, that unauthorized persons be banned from the courtroom in a bizarre letter sent to the Manhattan judge overseeing the case. He says, this motion contains a request to limit any unauthorized persons from entering the courtroom. And uh, cases in front of a grand jury, he explains, have been kept in secret since the 17th century in order to avoid improper influence by governmental authority or other outside forces. Now, uh, why is he expecting that fucking long-standing tradition uh, to uh, not apply to his case, I wonder. Since the 17th century, this is the way it's gone. I don't want it to be any different for me. He's just covering his bases. Princeton Grand, yeah. (laughs) Here's another thing. (laughs) I expect to be considered innocent until proven guilty. And I want an orange jumpsuit, the one that I'm wearing. I want to keep wearing it. I want to wear it. (laughs) And he he looks uh, like such a fucking dickhead. I, I can't think other than the fact that he's completely guilty uh, just by the look of him and, and, and by the description of the crime, of course. Right. I mean, like, uh, it's a very fucking uh, well-publicized. And, and uh, so, like, basically, his salary, his, his uh, what do you call it, his allowance, his allowance got cut. allowance, right. Yeah. Um, a man, yeah, 32-year-old man with an allowance, that's, a pro- that's probably a problem. Well, when you right? asked me if I've ever wanted to kill my father, to be fair, he's never cut my allowance. I'm still <laughs> getting I'm still getting my full allowance. So if he, if Dad, if you're listening, if you cut my allowance... I'll there's fucking a, there's cut you. Fucking, I will sever your thumb. There is a bullet waiting for you. Uh, it's a letter I was will sent get from Dwight and Rankers. He's been locked up since 2015, January 2015. Okay, so it's like this is a good almost two years now since uh, yeah. since he committed this crime. I guess it would be would have been December 2014. 
that uh, that this happened. He was an avid surfer. He references the grand jury, but uh, his numerous court appearances have nothing to do with the highly confidential legal panel that investigates potential criminal conduct. In the in the one page letter, Gilbert whines about negative press coverage. In July two thousand sixteen, there were uh, there were he says there were a second round of leaks on television, and there's the that SIC there showing that he doesn't know how to talk. Uh, or, or speak or write. He wrote, uh, unhappy that the media reported on his history of mental illness. These leaks contain portions of personal information from the psych hearings. Well, that's what the psych hearings are for. That should... <laughs> Come on. It's not going to stay personal, right? Let's go on to this little editorial here. This looks interesting. I was racially profiled at the New York Public Library. That will be very interesting, I'm sure. Because uh, racial profiling. I was racially profiled at the New York Public Library, this author says. Um, this is from Carlos Greer. As a 32-year-old black man, up to now, I had been fortunate enough to escape being approached by a security guard or police officer, but I know plenty of people who have. In fact, I've always feared my day would come, and it did on the eve of the presidential election. Hi, Carlos. Uh, we'd love to have you join us uh, this coming Monday, November 7th, New York Public Library's Library uh, Lions Gala which will commemorate the anniversary of Truman Capote's black and white ball. Man, a black guy being invited to something like that. I didn't even get invited to that, and I'm white. Why I, are they getting all the way down to the black guy's named Carlos? I, I'm confused. He he was... We're still leading up to the racial profile. Yes, exactly. Right. Just I mean, the invitation itself. Right. <laughs> they so, only invited me because I was black. Yeah. <laughs> to this exclusive. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I, I don't want to be a token. I was thrilled because civil rights icon and humanitarian Harry Belafonte was being honored. When I arrived at the library, I chatted with Ken Sunshine of Sunshine Sachs, the PR team, that handled the publicity and provided me with my press coverage. Press badge, rather. I received my seat... At another checkpoint, an event staffer was waiting at the elevator to tell me which floor to exit on. Another person directed me to the cocktail app. This guy's really like laying in the details here. I went to the reporter. I went into reporter mode and wandered the room to see who was there, but I could feel someone hovering over me. An older black man in a security blazer appeared, leaned into my ear, and said, "I don't want to offend you. Please don't take this the wrong way. But how did you get invited to this?" He says, "I'm a reporter covering this event." And the guy says, uh, do you have an email? I'm only asking because someone from events told us a guy walked in without showing an email and you fit the description. He said, you fit the description. I am thinking there's no way someone from their events team flagged me as a crasher because I've worked with them for so many years. I showed the security guards my press pass. I showed the security guards my press pass and seat assignment for the event and told them I was reporting for the post. Uh, who is your boss? I asked. A husky white guy wearing a similar blazer stood behind me and repeated, you match the description. After I confirmed my right to be there, the first security guard said, I pulled you to the side because I didn't want to offend you. Please enjoy your evening. Should I be thankful because he pulled me aside in order to not offend me? I was stunned by what just happened. And how did, how did this just happen in an event where Harry Belafonte was being honored? Do I use the We've R all word? we ourselves that question. <laughs> some point in our life. <laughs> uh, do I use the R word to explain what happened to the events downstairs? God forbid I come across as that black person playing the race card. Uh, usually by your very newspaper that you work for, by the way. It was devastating. I felt embarrassed and humiliated. I left immediately. You fit the description rang in my ears for the rest of the night. This is what it feels like to be told I shouldn't be somewhere because of how I look. 
Well, at least I heard it at a fancy gala as opposed to being wrongfully pulled over or something worse. Now, how many black people do you think were at this fucking event? I'm guessing hundreds. Yeah, I would. I mean, the, the impression I got is it's a large event. Yes. Uh, we're a, a racially, culturally, ethnically diverse city. What I hear you I'd saying is it's, they... it's crawling with them is what you're saying. <laughs> that, that, was, that, that was the word I was going to use, crawling. No, I, I, I assume, especially an event like that, they would make an effort to have uh, a lot of people represented there. Harry yeah. Belafonte. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so there would be a number of people who would, would you know, potentially... Uh, you know, a fit, a, it, it's not like he was the one black guy there and they're like, Presumably someone not. said black guy, we knew it was be you. You know what I mean? So there must have been more to the description, in other words, right. than just color. Right. Now, ha, uh, yeah, I mean, I we, we don't know, but that, that seems reasonable to assume. Um, you know, I, I, but I get it because I do feel like racial profiling is a huge problem and I feel like, yeah, you're going to be... Um, you're going to be very alert to that, I think, um, if you feel like you've been singled out. And I think if you've been singled out and you're black, you're probably going to reasonably assume, because it's often true, that that was the, the, the primary factor why you were singled out. Well, Rightly or wrongly. And he, in this case, it, it may not be. It may not be, but it may be, because as he says, Carrie uh, Welsh, the library's chief ex- uh, external relations officer, called me the next day. She wanted to tell me, how sorry I am uh, and what we're doing. There actually was a crasher, and you did fit the description. I responded, who was the other young black man with an afro in a room full of mostly white senior citizens? I am the description. She laughed. We hung up. On Thursday, the library was still unable to identify the crasher or tell me who flagged me to security, but I know now what it feels like to, quote, fit the description when security feels I don't belong in the room. Well, that last statement feels like a little bit of a leap to me. Saying uh, security feels like he didn't belong in the room. I mean, I assume they were they were given the description. Maybe it was as broad as young black man. Maybe there were other factors. Right. Yeah. Again, I, I get don't feeling don't belong in the room is you know yeah and he, he the picture that he has of himself right here is like he's uh, a young guy and he's wearing a pink uh, sort of over shirt uh, and a tie uh, to emphasize how how not threatening he is. Uh, which is, uh, it's a good choice, I guess. It makes sense. Well, uh, that could I, just be the photo he has. Um, this is clearly staged. Well, that's what I mean. It looks so, like it, it was a photo shoot. It may not be specifically for this story. No, that's what I mean. Yeah. For, for this story. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't mean that this was an actual candid photo. Right. What are you talking about? Yeah, this guy is, uh, he's a troublemaker. You know what I mean? He's a, I tell you what, we're in Trump's America now, Carlos. So uh, get used to this kind of shit. No, this has been going on uh, everywhere, forever. What this is is money is what it is. It's people with a lot of money. And uh, who the fuck would crash an event like that? You know, I guess a a huge Harry Belafonte fan or somebody who just wants the hors d'oeuvres or... I mean, if you have to show an email to get, but he didn't show an email to get in. How did he get in without doing that? I just, I don't know. I wonder about about the details of things like right. this because I always feel like there's, you know, if there is something pertinent that that kind of makes his case not as strong, he's obviously not going to well, include it. Well, I think it. the case isn't from what what's in there. I don't think the case is 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 that compelling in the sense that this is what I, I would say. If I was a young black guy and I was singled out in any context, I would 
justifiably assume that that was probably the factor. In this case, it's not clear that that was it, that was the sole factor. I see what you mean. Yeah, it, um, it, it, whatever it is that you are, you tend to assume well, that, th- that that's what it is that, that think got you to the point you are. Guys, they they definitely have you know historically received the brunt of police profiling unquestionably. Well, and that's it. Was say say in that situation. Well, I, I don't agree. I think that that, that they actually stop and frisk. Uh, you know, uh, an appropriate. Um, uh, percentage of, of uh, African Americans uh, do you know is in terms of like the amount of crime that was committed in in term and, and considering considering that the neighborhoods where they were policing were the neighborhoods where crime happens right and those neighborhoods were primarily black and Hispanic mm-hmm. like what do you want us to do right. I mean like we right. can't they're bust not, in white people to, they're not to stop doing and profiling them. on the Upper East Side in like um in, in primarily right. white neighborhoods because those tend to be lower crime. Yeah. Right. What they're doing is, and, and they're not, they're fo- but they're also not profiling in those bad neighborhoods because that's just who lives there. Right. They're not, you don't have to look hard to, to find, right. oh, I want to persecute some black people. Everybody's black. Everybody's it's, Hispanic. I, I don't know the data on this. I guess what would be interesting would be to see if in neighborhoods that are like, let's say, you know, around Washington Square Park, where you obviously have a lot of people, you know, different backgrounds mm-hmm. are, uh, you know, are, are black guys more likely to get stopped and, and frisked there when that was happening than white guys? I would assume yes. Possibly. But I don't know. Possibly. Uh, but, uh, you know... On the other hand, uh, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, Bloomberg's take on it at the time was that, like, well, we actually stop and frisk, you know, by the numbers, too many white people. That was mm-hmm. a, a fucking ballsy thing that, to say. That is ballsy. <laughs> I, mean, I think that was during his third term. He wasn't looking for any more. <laughs> right. He's like, they're not going to extend the length, <laughs> the limit again for me. And not only that, but like, I don't, I don't think he was uh, a confident in the in the uh, minority vote anyway. Oh, yeah. a guy like like De Blasio. There's a guy with something. There's a guy with a minority vote to lose. Yeah. Yeah. I just I despise pandering, and I despise I despise pandering when it's at the expense of you know the the safety of the city, which I think is what what we've seen with De Blasio. Going back to like you know talking about the talk that he gave to Dante and stuff like that, and I, I've already I've gone back and forth with uh, some you know conscientious and and interested and in, in, uh, you know uh, supportive listeners about this you know who have discussed this with me and and and, and uh, you know also you know everybody opens your eyes to some degree. Uh, it's it, always nice to hear from from uh, everybody you know on, on both sides of an issue. But I, I will say I still think I'm right, <laughs> and and you are out of time. I I, think. No, I just looked at my phone and let me just see. I, it's a ridiculous. Yes, wow. This time passed. It does go by quickly. Well, listen, Adam, uh, everybody should go see uh, the, the, the Mushroom Cure if they get an opportunity, if you're in New York City or elsewhere. Or elsewhere. Uh, Those are the two options. Yeah, and uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's it obviously looks like a very interesting... And, and again, maybe consider a different photo, you know what I mean? Like, you look like I, you're going, eh, potatoes, you want some potatoes? <laughs> the photo could uh, could be updated. But, uh, I, but it, uh, it sounds like a great show. A great deal of laughter uh, from disabling pain. A New York Times review. Yeah. Some people go their entire career, such as me, without having one of those. So, uh, yeah, thanks for being here. And uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, thank you for listening to New York City Crime Report. Well, I also remember you having one little incident with a fat person here once at the room upstairs. Yeah, it? I guess I did. <laughs> yeah, but the world. Yeah, it's happened. That guy was big. He was a bull, wasn't he? Yeah. Man, he was angry. Uh, well, I, you know what? And now, I mean, uh, uh, I should apologize again uh, about that because 
I didn't. I don't know what the lesson was there, except to get the hell out of sight. Yeah. <laughs> Just get out of sight and don't carry it. On, you know, but like, uh, I, I still don't know what I did to make that guy so no, mad. No, people are audience members nowadays are just. It's like comic rage. You know, I mean, they just like, yeah. you know, uh, there are no rules anymore. I get, you know, I answer phones here sometimes once in a blue moon. Like I get here, if someone can't cover. You, you, you would not believe the calls and the stupid questions people ask here on any given day. Oh, my know? God. Um, I was just in Times Square, and someone told me Richard Pryor is on tonight. <laughs> is he on your 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Come back Halloween. You have a shot at seeing him. You know? I mean, like. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing now. That hurts the business, I think, sometimes is because you have a situation where a guy who's selling tickets can be a little unscrupulous if they want to. There's no reason to be. In the end, it doesn't serve anybody, but they can tell people that the show is one thing. They sell a red car and you get a blue car and uh, and then they're the ones who keep the money. Here's the problem we have. We New York City, in its infinite wisdom, has licensed this whole thing where you now have to be licensed to sell tickets for a comedy club, which is great. But the problem is there are, oh, two problems. One, when you apply for your license, you can write any club you want on the license, even though you might not work for that club. And the city doesn't necessarily check this in any kind of timely manner. <laughs> so I'm Joe Blow. I decide I want to... I want to, like, scam people about the Broadway Comedy Club. I'm going to apply for a license and write down Broadway Comedy Club. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there ha are... This has happened? This is... Not only has it happened, we know the people... There are three... There, all this Tina Fey, Amy Schumer lies that have been going on for four years... Yeah. ...is down to three guys who do it. Three. You know who they are. Uh, we know who they are. And We've actually walked over to police officers. Those three guys, and my guys will show their license, their ID, that they work for Broadway Comedy, and those guys have our tickets, and they're not authorized to have our tickets, and they're selling them fraudulently. The cops say, well, we'll give them a warning, and I'm pretty sure they'll adhere to the warning. Yeah, okay, in fantasy land, you know. Whoa. Yeah, man. It's, it, so to get anybody to Thanks, enforce cops. this, yeah. yeah, so to get anybody to enforce these laws is impossible. What, like, what is my guy going to do? Walk over there and get into a fight with some, you know, guy and, 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 and then get arrested and wound up, you know. So it's a nightmare. So what's the point of the license? It's gotten so bad, we actually put an advisory on our website. Broadway Comedy Club that, that, that tells people, call the club, check our website, don't believe it. If someone's telling you that Dave Chappelle, Amy Schumer, and George Carlin are on the show for $5, it's more than likely a scam. Call the club. And yeah, and I, I had to put this on my website. You know? Jesus. And very likely, they're, they're, they're not getting $5. So they're getting $40. Well, that's tickets, what they yeah. do. What they do is some of these guys, the way they get our tickets is they'll see one of our legitimate guys sell someone a ticket, right? Mm -hmm. They work for another club. They walk over to the guy and they'll say, comedy tonight? And the, and the customer will say, well, I just bought tickets from the other guy. Oh, really? What club? Oh, Broadway. Oh, that's a scam. I'll give you tickets here to such and such comedy club. Take these tickets. Let me have the, those Broadway tickets. I'll, I'll get rid of them for you. 
Oh so now God. this guy starts accumulating Broadway comedy club tickets. He's so he's done two things. He's so he's given him a ticket to another club where he'll get a kickback. Yeah. And now he takes the Broadway tickets who he doesn't work for and doesn't care what we think of him. And he sells them to some unsuspecting tourist around 10.30 at night. We know when it happens. 10.30 at night, a half hour before our 11 o'clock show, people walk over to the club from Times Square, get here at 5 to 11, 10 to 11, find out it's a scam, go back to Times Square, and this guy's on the one train back to the Bronx. <laughs> I mean... It, and, and basically for him, those, that, that's... Uh, those found tickets, money. The tickets fell off a truck. And and uh, now now you have an unhappy customer. Yes. And, and who are they going to be pissed at? Us. Yeah. Because uh, you know how many chicken wings I have to give away <laughs> to keep these people happy. It <laughs> depends on the act that they sold them, right? Well, yeah. you know it's funny. On its own, you know, there's a, a little dirty secret about comedy clubs in Manhattan, and that is most of them. Don't do totally pro shows, especially on weeknights. Mm -hmm. They do what's known as a hybrid show. Mm -hmm. They'll take two or three comedians, mix them in with a bunch of bringers who are bringing the audience, mm -hmm. and and then mix it in with a couple of guys such as yourself, which are solid comedians, uh -huh. and then sell that show because then they get they might get 15 audience members on their own and then the bringers bring in another 25 or 30 and now they got 45 or 50 in the room. It looks crowded. You need butts and seats. Right. Here, we have two separate showrooms. So a lot of our produced shows are upstairs in the red room mm -hmm. and in the main room, you've worked it, you see it's mostly regular New York City comics that are very solid guys. Yeah, it's all pro. And I then mean, like Saturday a... night, we had John Fish, Greg Rogel, and Dan Natterman. Do you get much better than uh, that? Yeah, you, uh, some people are doing it right in this world, and one of those is Al Martin, a Broadway comedy club. Is it over?